Section 12 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Botez. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 2. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Brennus Burns Rome, B.C. 388. Bartold Georg Nibur. Part 1. Julius Caesar is the first writer who gives us an authentic and enlightening account on the Gauls, whom he divided in three groups. The Gauls were the chief branch of the great original stock of Celts. They were nomadic people, and from their home in Western Europe, they spread to Britain, invaded Spain, and swarmed over the Alps into Italy. And it is from the latter event that this tall, fair, and fighting nation first came into the region of history. Before the Gauls had come within the borders of Italy, Camillus, the dictator, had dealt the death blow to the Etruscan League through his capture and destruction of his stronghold, Veii. But at the very summit of his triumph, he lost the grace of his countrymen by demanding a tenth of their spoil taken at Veii, and which he claimed to have vowed to Apollo. It was popularly considered a ruse to increase his private fortune. Furthermore, a counterclaim was brought against him for appropriating bronze gates, which in Rome at that time were nothing less than actual money, bronze being the medium of currency. Camillus went into exile in consequence of the accusation. His parting prayer was that his country might feel his need and call him back. His desire was fulfilled for soon after the goal was at the gates, under the leadership of the haughty Brennus, who had come upon the Romans at a most opportune moment. This event of the overthrow of the Romans on the Aelia has been the occasion for the well-known tale of the cackling of the geese in the temple of Juno, which alarmed the garrison. The episode also gave rise to the saying of the conqueror, Brennus, who, when reproached by his antagonists with using false weights, cast his sword into the scale, crying, Woe to the conquered! At that time, no Roman foresaw the calamity which was threatening the empire. Rome had become great because the country which she had conquered was weak through its oligarchical institutions. The subjects of the other states gladly joined the Romans, because under them their lot was more favorable, and probably because they were kindred nations. But matters went with the Romans as they did with Basilius, who subdued the Armenians when they were threatened by the Turks, and who soon after attacked the whole Greek Empire and took away far more than had been gained before. The expedition of the Gauls into Italy must be regarded as a migration, 
and not as an invasion for the purpose of conquest. As for the historical account of it, we must adhere to Polybius and Diodorus, who place it shortly before the taking of Rome by the Gauls. We can attach no importance to the statement of Livy, that they had come into Italy as early as the time of Tarquinius Priscus, having been driven from their country by a famine. It undoubtedly arose from the fact that some Greek writer, perhaps Timaeus, connected this migration with the settlement of the Phocians at Massilia. It is possible that Livy even here made use of Dionysius, and that the latter followed Timaeus. For, as Livy made use of Dionysius in the eighth book, why not also in the fifth? He himself knew very little of Greek history, but Justin's account is here evidently opposed to Livy. Trogus Pompeius was born in the neighborhood of Massilia, and in writing his 43rd book, he obviously made use of native chronicles, for from no other source could he derive the account of the Decreta Honorifica of the Romans to Massilians for the friendship which the latter has shown to the Romans during the Gallic War. And from the same source must he have obtained his information about the maritime wars of Massilia against Carthage. Trogus knows nothing of the story that the Gauls assisted the Phocians on their arrival. But according to him, they met with a kind of reception among the Ligurians, who continued to inhabit those parts for a long time after. Even the story of the Lucumo, who is said to have invited the Gauls, is opposed to him, and if it were referred to Clusium alone, it would be absurd. Polybius places the passage of the Gauls across the Alps about ten or twenty years before the taking of Rome, and Diodorus describes them as advancing toward Rome by an uninterrupted march. It is further stated that Melpum, in the country of the Insubrians, was destroyed on the same day as Veii. Without admitting this coincidence, we have no reason to doubt that the statement is substantially true, and it is made by Cornelius Nepos, who, as a native of Gallia Transpadana, might possess accurate information, and whose chronological accounts were highly esteemed by the Romans. There was no other passage for the Gauls, except either across the little St. Bernard, or across the Simplon. It is not probable that they took the former road, because their country extended only as far as the Ticinus, and if they had come across the little St. Bernard, they would naturally have occupied also all the country between that mountain and the Ticinus. The Salassi may indeed have been a Gaelic people, but it is by no means certain Moreover, between them and the Gauls who had come across the Alps, the Levi also lived, and there can be no doubt that at that time Ligurians still continued to dwell on the Ticinus. Melpum must have been situated in the district of Milan, 
the latter place has an uncommonly happy situation. Often as it has been destroyed, it has always been restored, so that it is not impossible that Melpum may have been situated on the very spot afterward occupied by Milan. The Gaelic migration undoubtedly passed by like a torrent with irresistible rapidity. How then is it possible to suppose that Melpum resisted them for two centuries, or that they conquered it and yet did not disturb the Etruscans for two hundred years? It would be absurd to believe it, merely to save an uncritical expression of Livy. According to the common chronology, the Tribali, who in the time of Herodotus inhabited the plains, and were afterward expelled by the Gauls, appeared in Thrace twelve years after the taking of Rome. According to a more correct chronology, it was only nine years after that event. It was the same movement, assuredly, which led the Gauls to the countries through which the middle course of the Danube extends, and to the Po. And could the people who came in a few days from Clusium to Rome and afterward appeared in Apulia, have been sitting quiet in a corner of Italy for two hundred years? If they had remained there because they had not the power to advance, they would have been cut to pieces by the Etruscans. We must therefore look upon it as an established fact that the migration took place at the late period mentioned by Polybius and Diodorus. These Gauls were partly Celts and partly, indeed principally, Belge or Cymri, as may be perceived from the circumstance that their king, as well as the one who appeared before Delphi, is called Brennus. Brennin, according to Adelang in his Mithridates, signifies in the language of Wales and Lower Brittany, a king. But what caused the whole emigration? The statement of Livy that the Gauls were compelled by famine to leave their country is quite in keeping with the nature of all traditions about migrations, such as we find them in Saxo Grammaticus, in Paul Wernefried, from the sagas of the Swedes, in the Tyrannian traditions of Lydia, and others. However, in the case of a people like the Celts, every specific statement of this kind, in which even the names of their leaders are mentioned, is of no more value than the traditions of other barbarous nations, which were unacquainted with the art of writing. It is indeed well known that the Celts in writing used the Greek alphabet, but they probably employed it only in the transactions of daily life, for we know that they were not allowed to commit their ancient songs to writing. During the Gaelic migration we are again made aware how little we know of the history of Italy generally. Our knowledge is limited to Rome, so that we are in the same predicament there as if, of all the historical authorities of the whole German Empire, we had nothing but the annals of a single imperial city. 
According to Levy's account, it would seem as if the only object of the Gauls had been to march to Rome, and yet this immigration changed the whole aspect of Italy. After the Gauls had once crossed the Apennines, there was no further obstacle to prevent their marching to the south of Italy by any road they pleased, and it is in fact mentioned that they did proceed farther south. The Umbrians still inhabited the country on the lower Po, in the modern Romania and Urbino, parts of which were occupied by Liburnians. Polybius says that many people there became tributary to the Gauls, and that this was the case of the Umbrians is quite certain. The first historical appearance of the Gauls is at Clusium, whither a noble Clusine is said to have invited them for the purpose of taking vengeance on his native city. Whether this account is true, however, must remain undecided. And if there is any truth in it, it is more probable that the offended Clusine went across the Apennines and fetched his avengers. Clusium has not been mentioned since the time of Porsena. The fact of the Clusines soliciting the aid of Rome is a proof how little that northern city of Etruria was concerned about the fate of the southern towns, and makes us even suspect that it was allied with Rome. However, the danger was so great that all jealousy must have been suppressed. The natural road for the Gauls would have been along the Adriatic, then through the country of Umbrians, who were tributary to them, and already quite broken down, and thence through the Romagna across the Apennines. But the Apennines which separate Tuscany from the Romagna are very difficult to cross, especially for sumpter horses, as therefore the Gauls could not enter Etruria on that side, which the Etruscans had intentionally allowed to grow wild. And as they had been convinced of this in an unsuccessful attempt, they crossed the Apennines in the neighborhood of Clusium, and appeared before that city. Clusium was the great bulwark of the valley of the Tiber, and if it were taken, the roads along the Tiber and the Arno would be open, and the Gauls might reach Arezzo from the rear. The Romans, therefore, looked upon the fate of Clusium as decisive of their own. The Clusines sued for a treaty with the mighty city of Rome, and the Romans were wise enough readily to accept the offer. They sent ambassadors to the Gauls, ordering them to withdraw. According to a very probable account, the Gauls had demanded of the Clusines a division of their territory as the condition of peace, and not as was customary with the Romans as a tax upon a people already subdued. If this is correct, the Romans sent the embassy, confiding in their own strength. But the Gauls scorned the ambassadors, and the latter, allowing themselves to be carried away by their warlike disposition, joined the Etruscans in a fight against the Gauls. This was probably only an insignificant and isolated engagement. 
such as the account of Livy, who goes on to say that the Gauls, as soon as they perceived this violation in the law of nations, gave the signal for a retreat, and, having called upon the gods to avenge the wrong, marched against Rome. This is evidently a mere fiction, for a barbarous nation like the Gauls cannot possibly have had such ideas nor was there in reality any violation of the law of nations, as the Romans stood in no kind of connection with the Gauls. But it was a natural feeling with the Romans to look upon the fall of their city as the consequence of an ephas which no human power could resist. Roman vanity also is at work here, inasmuch as the Roman ambassadors are said to have so distinguished themselves that they were recognized by the barbarians among the hosts of Etruscans. Now, according to another tradition directly opposed to these statements, the Gauls sent to Rome to demand the surrender of those ambassadors. As the Senate was hesitating and left the decision to the people, the latter not only rejected the demand, but appointed the same ambassadors to the office of military tribunes, whereupon the Gauls with all their forces at once marched towards Rome. Livy here again speaks of the populace as the people to whom the Senate left the decision. This must have been the patricians only for they alone had the right to decide upon the fate of the members of their own order. It is not fair to accuse the Romans on that occasion of dishonesty, but this account assuredly originated with later writers, who transferred to barbarians the right belonging to a nation standing in a legal relation to another. The statement that the three ambassadors, all of whom were Fabi, were appointed military tribunes, is not even the usual one, for there is another in Diodorus, who must here have used Roman authorities written in Greek, that is, Fabius, since he calls the Kerites Greek Keri and not Greek Agulei. He speaks of a single ambassador, who, being a son of a military tribune, fought against the Gauls. This is at least a sign how uncertain history yet is. The battle on the Alia was fought on the 16th of July. The military tribunes entered upon their office on the 1st of that month, and the distance between Clusium and Rome is only three good days' marches. It is impossible to restore the true history, but we can discern what is fabulous from what is really historical. An innumerable host of Gauls now march from Clusium toward Rome. For a long time the Gauls were most formidable to the Romans, as well as to all other nations with whom they came in contact even as far east as the Ukraine. As to Rome, we see this as late as the Cisalpine War of the Year, AU 527. 
Polybius and Diodorus are our best guides in seeking for information about the manners of the Gauls, for in the time of Caesar they had already become changed. In the description of their persons we partly recognize the modern Gale, or the inhabitants of the highlands of Scotland, huge bodies, blue eyes, bristly hair. Even their dress and armor are those of the Highlanders, for they wore the checked and variegated tartans. Their arms consisted of the broad, unpointed battle sword, the same weapon as the claymore among the Highlanders. They had a vast number of horns, which were used in the Highlands for many centuries after, and threw themselves upon the enemy in immense irregular masses with terrible fury, those standing behind impelling those stationed in front, whereby they became irresistible by the tactics of those times. The Romans ought to have used against them their phalanx and doubled it, until they were accustomed to this enemy, and were enabled by their greater skill to repel them. If the Romans had been able to withstand their first shock, the Gauls would have easily been thrown into disorder and put to flight. The Gauls, who were subsequently conquered by the Romans, were the descendants of such as were born in Italy, and had lost much of their courage and strength. The Goths under Vitiges not fifty years after the immigration of Theodoric in Italy, were cowards and unable to resist the twenty thousand men of Belisarius, showing how easily barbarians degenerate in such climates. The Gauls, moreover, were terrible on account of their inhuman cruelty, for wherever they settled, the original towns and their inhabitants completely disappeared from the face of the earth. In their own country they had the feudal system and a priestly government. The Druids were their only rulers, who avenged the oppressed people on the lords, but in their turn became tyrants. All the people were in the condition of serfs, a proof that the Gauls in their own country, too, were the conquerors who had subdued an earlier population. We always find mention of the wealth of the Gauls in gold. And yet France has no rivers that carry gold sand, and the Pyrenees were then no longer in their possession. The gold must therefore have been obtained by barter. Much may be exaggeration and the fact of some noble individuals wearing gold chains was probably transferred by ancient poets to the whole nation, since popular poetry takes great liberty, especially in such embellishments. End of section 12